name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you are just joining us, then, uh, or if you've been here for a long time, take your Bible and turn it to that text. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the round tables for you. You're welcome to get up now and to get one. If you don't know where Haggai is, uh, which that could be like a lot of us, because it's a very small book in the Minor Prophets, there is a table of contents for you in the front, and we all start somewhere. Well, if you are just joining us, let me welcome you. I have to tell you that today is going to be an interesting Sunday for you to be here because today is a Sunday when we are spending some time talking about a somewhat uncomfortable subject, money. In some ways, I guess it's a good Sunday for you to be here because it's not primarily for you if you are a visitor. And yet it just might be. Why talk about money? And why talk about money when there's the temptation, the danger of affirming a stereotype that many of us have, and that is that the church really exists to get my money, for power and for money. Well, let me say why I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about money because I need your money or this church needs your money. I'm not talking about money because God needs your money. I'm talking about money because what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That means that Where you place your money is an exact indication of of what you treasure, what you value, what you desire, where your heart is. And and God and I, well, I'm called to care about your heart because God cares about your heart. So I got to talk about money because money is so intimately related to your heart. And I have to talk about money because it's, it's actually quite important. It's important... And we see that throughout the scripture, from the laws of Moses to the prophets, even Jesus. Uh, Money is one of the subjects that he talked about the most. Some estimates up to 25% of, of what Jesus said, he talked about money. And James, Paul, Peter, in their writings, they all talk about money. You see, the Bible, the Bible um, thinks that money is important. Because it knows it's important to you. And we don't wait to talk about money till the end of the year. We talk about it at the beginning of the year because you don't wait to think about money till the end of the year, do you? I I would wager that there's not many days that go by where you don't think about money. And so you want the Bible and you want Christianity and you want teaching to be relatable to life. Well, there's no more relatable subject. And let's be honest, it's a difficult subject. There are a lot of things that we would rather talk about. Uh, Most people will come into my office and talk about their sex life, their bedroom, before they'll talk about their bank account, money. And so, uh, so I need to pray. Let me pray for us. God, I do pray... that your heart would be communicated through the word preached. Your heart of grace and of love. 
that we would see you in your generosity and your love for us. Lord, I confess that the words I'm about to, to say are, are unsettling to me and will be to many. And so we need you. And we need your love. And we need to see you and experience you. We thank you that you've promised to abide with your word. And we pray that you would come to us in all your saving power as it's preached. I pray that especially for myself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at the challenge, the question, the insight, and the answer. The challenge, the question, the insight, and the answer. So first, the challenge. And to understand the challenge, I need to set the scene. It's 520 B.C., some 15 to 20 years before the Jewish people have returned from exile. They have been away from Jerusalem for um, a long time. Uh, when they get back, Jerusalem has been sacked. Uh, but they had a very important task. They were to build the temple. The temple. The temple was that central religious symbol in Israelite religion and history and culture. It was a place of worship and sacrifice. It was the place where God's manifest presence was most felt and experienced. And the temple was also to be a sign and witness of the cosmic reign of God. The temple. Well, they were supposed to build the temple, but they just didn't think it was time. Look verse 2. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And you could understand why. I mean, when they got back to Jerusalem, it's not just the temple that needed rebuilding. Everything needed to be rebuilt. The infrastructure, their homes, uh, military forces, everything had to be rebuilt. And there was a lot to do. Uh, moreover, it was a time of great political unrest. One leader has died two years earlier, another leader has come, and, and the people of Israel, they're not even an independent political entity. They've got this governor, he is a king of David, he's sitting on, I mean, he is in the line of David, he's sitting on uh, not a throne, but a governor's seat, Zerubbabel. He's certainly not the Messiah. So this isn't the return that everyone expected uh, moreover, it's not that there's political unrest, there's also financial distress. Uh, the people, because they were ruled by a foreign nation, they uh, were under a heavy burden of taxation. And, and not only that, we learn in verse 11 that there was a drought in the land. And for an agrarian economy, that's devastating. A drought in the land. And, and it's not that the people were being lazy, Look verse 6. They sowed much. They were working. They were working hard. And verse 9 tells us that they were busy. It's just that there was so much to do when they got back. They were stretched thin. There wasn't enough time in the day, so it just didn't seem like the right time to start a building campaign and rebuild the temple. I wonder if you can relate. I can. I got back from vacation, 
Wednesday night. I entered my office Thursday morning, and I did what most of us do when we get back from, from vacation. I, I started to make a list of all the things that I needed to get done in the next couple weeks. And uh, my calendar starts filling up, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, okay, this is manageable. And then I start going through my emails. And then as I'm going through my emails, I put more things in my calendar. I'm thinking, this is not looking as manageable. And then I start getting replies from emails. Those replies from emails are coming in while I'm getting texts. Then I get those texts, and I'm putting them Then I realize, oh, I've triple booked myself. And then, then I got what Bridget Schulte calls the overwhelm. You know that experience? Brigitte Schulte, in her book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has Time, writes about uh, our experience of always feeling like we were our one step behind. She writes, at night I often wake in a panic about all the things I need to do or didn't get done. Do you ever feel that panic? Can you relate? I can. I woke up Thursday night in a panic thinking about all the things that I need to do and that I hadn't gotten done that day. Do you know that feeling? Uh, Difficulty going to bed at night because of all the things that you need to get done or waking up in the middle of the night and going through the list of feeling like you are not in control but you are carried along by one calendar alert after another. And you're always behind, always out of step, frantic, stretched, thin, and you just need more hours in the day, more resources. Do you know what I'm talking about? Of course you do. Of course you do. More than one-third of Americans say that they don't have enough time, according to a recent study. See, I think that we can relate to this challenge, and it's all of us who can relate to this challenge. Uh, Bill Gates, and then article in Forbes magazine. He was in an interview about his retirement, and in the midst of that interview, um, he said that he had to quit golf because he just didn't have time to learn it. It takes too much time in retirement to learn golf because of all the not-for-profit stuff that he was doing and humanitarian aid. I mean, if Bill Gates doesn't have time in his retirement, who of us has time? Israel, they felt stretched thin. They could relate, and we can relate to this challenge. So let's move on to the question. And the question for those of us who relate to this challenge is not an easy one. It's a bit biting. I'm not going to lie. It's a little bit piercing. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while This house lies in ruins. The people are stretched thin. They say it's just not time. We don't have the resources. We don't have the time to work on the temple. And then God asks, well, you you say that you don't have time to work in the temple. You say that things are busy, and yet you seem to have enough time and resources to build plush houses. I heard someone say once that when we say we're too busy, and you know what I'm talking about, 
Uh, because what is the response that you normally give or normally hear when someone asks, how's your week been? How's it going? The most common response is, I'm busy. We are busy. But I heard someone say that when we say we're too busy what we, to do something, what we really mean is that that thing is just not that important. It's not a priority. Because with all the things that we have to get done, it just doesn't rise on the list of what we're going to do. See, a priority is what comes first. God is pointing out that these people, they have time and they have resources, but the temple, it was just not a priority for them. What about for you? You say, how does this relate to me? I mean, I'm not called to build a physical temple in Jerusalem. You're right, you're not. You're not called to build a physical temple in Jerusalem. So how does this relate to you? Well, you are called to build a temple. Did you know that? You are called to contribute your resources toward a temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, for we are the temple of God. See, what the temple was, the church is. The church is the place where people gather to worship God. The church is the place where people experience the forgiveness of God based on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The, place, the church is the place where God's manifest presence is most experienced and felt. Not a place where, but a people who. A people who are called out by God to worship God. A people whose ministry is a sign and a witness of God's cosmic kingdom. The church. What the temple was, the church is. So the question is, how important is the church to you? And the ministry and the mission of the church. Do you invest your time, your resources your energy into the church. And you say, well, I would, but who's got time? And who's got resources? I mean, and I understand, we live in Santa Barbara. And let's be honest, rents are high. Mortgages are steep. Most people here, most families are uh, at least 1.5 incomes, if not two incomes. Life is busy there's so much to get done. And besides, I mean, you know, college tuition is not getting cheaper. And that keeps me up at night. And I only have one child. Some of you have way more. <laughs> and then there's retirement to think about. And there's so many things. But I want you to notice that, that God doesn't deny that times are hard. Verse 11, he insists, he knows, he affirms that there is a drought in the land. He doesn't think there's an abundance of resources. He recognizes the scarcity. And, and he also does not deny that people are busy. It's just verse 9 that each person is busy with his own house. Say so a priority is what comes first. Whatever gets accomplished, whatever gets your time and your resources and your energy, that's, that's what you prioritize. 
And the question is that God's asking his people here is, do you prioritize the temple? And I think the question for us at the beginning of the year, in the first month of the year, in 2017, is will we prioritize the mission and ministry of the church? Is it the church's mission or paneled houses? Now, sometimes I, I hear people say, Kyle, I would, I would give more, but just at the end of the month, there's nothing left over. I have a good solution to that. Don't give God your leftovers. Give him what's first. Set money aside first. Uh, you say, well, but there's the sporting events. There's all the kids' recreation. There's the camping trips. There's the private schools. And there's that extra room or addition we want to put on our house. None of those are bad things. But the question that we all have to ask, that this, that this causes us to ask is, are we going to prioritize the mission and ministry of the church more? And ask me that. Now, some of you do. And so, for some of you, I want you to know, uh, I want you to know that, well, you're happier for it. And we'll get to that in a bit. But for some of us, this feels harsh. It feels like a guilt trip, let's be honest. But, but I don't think that Haggai means it as a guilt trip. He's not trying to hurt us. He's trying to help us. He's not trying to take something away. He's trying to give us something. But there's a deep irony in this text. Look in verses 9 through 11. God says, you expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains in ruins, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the, uh, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and everything else the ground produces on the people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. See, there's a deep irony here, and here's the irony. See, the people say, we cannot, we cannot build the temple. We cannot invest our resources there uh, because times are tough. And God says, oh, times are tough because you aren't investing your resources in the temple. Uh, in fact, this is, his judgment, verse 9, I blew it away. Well, then wait a second, Kyle. I thought you said that this is grace, but this doesn't sound like grace. This sounds like judgment. But it is. It is grace. It is grace. But to get to that, we have to get to the, the insight. The insight to understand the grace in this text. So we've seen the challenge, we've seen the question, but now let's move on to the insight. In verse 5, God says, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who 
earns wages, does so to put them into bags with holes. Thus said the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Uh, Twice in these verses, God tells the people to slow down and consider their ways. Take stock of your life. Think about where your priorities and where you've spent your priorities. Think about where it has gotten you. Yes, you sow much, but you harvest little. Yes, you eat, sure, but you're never satisfied. Sure, you drink, but your thirst is never quenched. Yes, you have clothes, but they don't keep you warm. They don't do what they're supposed to do. And yet you earn money, but it isn't going anywhere. It's like you have bags with holes in them. Anyone ever feel like that? Anyone ever feel like there's a hole at the bottom of their bank account? That's what these people feel like. God says, sit down. Stop. Take stock. Where have these pursuits gotten you? And where have they gotten us? Where has all our busyness gotten us? In a Boston Globe article in 2013, Dr. Susan Coven wrote, In the past few years, I have observed an epidemic of source. Patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. I, I, I have most of those. There are no blood tests or x-ray diagnostics of this condition. And yet it's easy to recognize the condition is excessive busyness. And I feel it. See, where has all our busyness gotten? A study after study is showing that, guess what? We're not more productive because of all our busyness. In fact, it's keeping us up at night. It's making us more distracted. And so we're less productive. Where has all our busyness gotten us? Well, it hasn't helped us out. It hasn't achieved the desired results. It hasn't gotten us to the end that it was supposed to. It's, it's like we, we sow, but we harvest little. We sow much, but we harvest little. And what about the paneled houses? Where have they gotten us? What about all the stuff? I recently saw a documentary on these two guys, and they're called The Minimalist. Have you seen this or heard about these folks? The Minimalists are these two guys that basically, they were pursuing the dream, they were climbing up the corporate ladder, and their whole goal was to gain more and more and more and more, more better stuff. And they found themselves completely discontent, completely dissatisfied, and so uh, one of them decided, like, this isn't working, This dream that I'm pursuing, it's not actually leaving me satisfied. So they decided to sell everything and live on as little as possible. The idea, they write, is to eliminate excess in order to lead a purpose-driven life. Minimalism is a tool that can assist you in finding freedom. Freedom from fear, from worry, freedom from overwhelm, freedom from guilt, freedom from depression, freedom from the trappings of the consumeristic culture we've built our lives around. And you know what? People are flocking to their blog like crazy. Why? Because if you take a little stock, you realize that all our stuff is not getting us what we thought it would get us. 
It's not leaving us satisfied. Rather than satisfying us, the things that we're pursuing are just doing the opposite. We eat, but we never have enough. We drink, but we're never full. We clothe ourselves, but we're not warm. And and it feels like we have holes in our bank account. About five years ago, uh, the Washington Post, um, it... uh, Made, it might have been, that was actually the Wall Street Journal. It put out an article, and it said that one-third of Americans who make over $100,000 a year agree with this statement. I can afford to buy everything I need. One-third. That means two-thirds of Americans who make over $100,000 do not think that they can afford to buy everything they need. Not want need. Let me ask a question. How come we can live in one of the most prosperous societies, the most prosperous times of all of history, and still feel like we don't have enough? What Jesus tells us in the passage that was read earlier Watch out for all forms of covetousness or greed. The exorbitant, excessive desire for wealth and possessions. Greed. See, wealth is not the problem, but greed is. And greed looks at wealth and always says it's not enough. Just a little bit more. One time John D. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? And he answered, just a little bit more. But you see the problem with that. If it always takes a little bit more to be satisfied, then you're never satisfied. You're always dissatisfied. And that's exactly the point. That's why our bank accounts feel like they have holes in them. Because it's not enough. It can never be enough. But we think that it is. I I mean... Think about for a second, what are we looking for in all this stuff, really? What are we looking for in our busy schedules, really? Uh, John Hopkins University did a, a, a whole study, like a think tank on busyness. And one of the professors there, Eric uh, Helzer, he had this insight. He says, there's a norm toward being busy, and that busyness confers, and, and that is that busyness confers your value. Your potential worth is somehow wrapped up in the perceived lack of time you have. As we compete to be productive, busyness is as much a status symbol as anything else. So what am I really saying when I say I'm busy? Well, let me tell you what I'm saying. Behind those words, if you want to read into those words, hear what those words mean. They mean, I'm important. And that's what I'm trying to tell you. And my calendar and its fullness is trying to say, I'm important. See, what are we looking for in all our busyness? We are looking for value and status. It's the same thing that we're looking for in money as well. You will remember the scene if you've seen the movie Moneyball. Billy Bean is being offered a job to be the general manager of the Red Sox. 
and he is offered an exorbitant amount of money. And he's sitting there talking to Jonah Hill's character, and Jonah Hill's character says to him, you're going to take the job. And here's why. Quote, you're not doing it for the money. No, you're doing it for what the money says. And it says that anyone who makes that kind of money is worth it. See, we look to money to give us value. We look to money to be a status symbol. That's why we say, uh, think about how we say, talk about people. How much is she worth? We don't say how much is their net worth. We say how much is she worth? Like their value is equated with how much money, how much wealth and possessions they have. We look for money for worth. We look to money for security. It's why we call them securities. And we put our trust in it. That's why we call them trusts. And we also look to money to give us comfort, pleasure, satisfaction. But it isn't working. It doesn't work. Consider your ways. Consider your ways, God says. Where is it all leaving you? Where is it leaving me? Exhausted, anxious, dissatisfied. So what's the answer? What's the answer? If that's the insight, what's the answer? Well, the answer is there in verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The answer is to pour your resources into the temple. The answer is to prioritize the temple. You say, well, hold on a second. Whoa, 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 Kyle. Earlier, I thought you said that, that God doesn't need your money and that the church doesn't need your money and that they weren't just trying to get your money. But that kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? I mean, verse 8, go to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Spend your resources on the temple, which is the church. Wait, I thought you said... Wait. It sounds to me, Kyle, like you're saying that the church just wants my money. Well, maybe God does want your money. Maybe Jesus wants your money. Maybe that's why he talks about it so much. Maybe that's why he tells the rich young ruler to sell everything. Maybe he wants your money. But the question is, why does he want your money? Why does God want your money? And why does he want you to spend it on the temple? And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That is, where you put your treasure, where you put your money, it's an exact indication of what you value. And God, he wants you to value the temple. Why? What is the temple? You know, the story of the Bible is really a story of the temple. Did you know that? Uh, scholars, Christian and Jews alike, say that the temple was modeled after Eden. The temple was modeled after Eden because Eden was a temple. Eden was a place where God's manifest presence dwelt. Eden was the place where human beings knew that they were accepted and loved in his presence. Eden was a place where there was, uh, it was, Well, it was a a sign and witness of God's cosmic reign because there God did reign. His reign of peace was perfect. 
the Hebrews, they called it shalom. As one scholar says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And in Eden was shalom, but we lost shalom. We lost shalom when we decided to take a material good instead of God, instead of communion with him. Shalom was cut off. We lost shalom because we lost God. No more flourishing, no more satisfaction. And in front of Eden, there was a a fire and a knife to guard the way through. The only way back through was through fire and a knife. We lost God, but God did not lose us. See, God, he wanted to dwell with us. And so he told the people of Israel to build a tabernacle. It was like a new Eden. And then uh, he came and he dwelt among them. Exodus 25, 9, Have them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And there in in the tabernacle, There they experienced God's manifest presence. There they knew that they were forgiven and accepted and loved and embraced and valued. There they could have communion with God, but the only way was through through sacrifice. Was through sacrifices going under the knife, through sacrifices being burnt up. You see, the only way back into Eden was through fire and a knife. Well, the story moves on and then God dwells not in a tabernacle but permanently in a temple. And there when the temple is established, uh, God's uh, presence comes in the form of fire and descends upon the temple. And there in the temple, people experience forgiveness, acceptance, love, harmony. And there, there God's reign is felt, God's peace, God's shalom in the temple. But One day the temple is destroyed. God's people turn from him again. They choose other gods and God's dwelling leaves the temple. And so we fast forward and God tells them to build a temple again. That's the text that we're in. And they build this temple. But you know what happens after they build that temple? The glory never returned. We never read about the fire dwelling There was something missing. The glory never returned until in the first century, a young Jewish man from Nazareth entered the temple. And he said, my body is the temple. I am the temple. I am the sign and witness of God's reign. I am the king, the Messiah. And it's through me that forgiveness, acceptance is found and experienced. It's through me that you will experience shalom, peace. And he brought it about by dying and rising again. And when he ascended on high, he did not leave us alone, but he sent his spirit. And there, while his followers were gathered praying on Pentecost, fire came down. And God once again indwelt his temple. So that Paul says that we are the temple of God. 
And it's here in the church that we experience God's love and his acceptance, his forgiveness based on the sacrifice of Jesus. It's here where we experience his manifest presence. And it's here that we, through our mission and and through our ministries, uh, we proclaim the kingdom of God. We are a sign and a witness of his coming kingdom. But that's not the last that we hear of the temple, you know. In Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, we read of this vision that the apostle John has. A vision of a city, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And that city, it looks strangely like a garden. It looks like a garden. There are things about that garden, too, that are quite familiar, like there is a tree there, a tree of life, and a river there. And it looks strangely like Eden because it is Eden. And it not only looks like Eden, it looks like something else too. This garden city, it looks like something else. Do you know what it looks like? You guessed it. A temple. And the whole earth becomes the temple of God. The whole earth becomes the place where God's manifest presence is felt and experienced where God is all and is in all. And there in that place, his reign, his peace, his shalom is everywhere. What are we looking for in our busyness and what are we looking for? What are we looking for in all the stuff? What are we trying to achieve? We're looking for what the te- only the temple can provide. We're looking for value. And in the temple, God says, you are my sons and daughters, loved and accepted. We're looking for status and value. And God says, you are, you are worthy. You are worth a lot to me. You are worth so much that I spilled my own precious blood that you can be here. We're looking for security. John writes, in that temple there will be no more sea. The sea is the place of chaos and confusion, and that will be gone. And neither will there be pain anymore, and neither will there be suffering or crying. Neither will there be sin or death. What are we looking for? We're looking for satisfaction And there we will be satisfied with the only thing that can satisfy us fully. God himself. And we who are thirsty, God will give the water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And we will drink and we will be satisfied and we will know. And we will taste and see that he is good. And we will know flourishing. Why does God want you to invest in the temple? Because God knows that that's the only place where your heart will be satisfied ultimately. And God wants you to give a vision of that. And God wants to capture your heart there because he cares about your heart. He cares about it so much that he, throughout all of history, has been crafting a story to dwell with you. 
And God will dwell with his people and they will be his people. And he will be their God. So it is a grace. See, why does God, why does God want you to, to give? Why does he want me to give to, to the temple? Why does he want us to prioritize our resources toward the mission and ministry of the church? Because he wants to be with us. Because he loves us. Because it pleases him. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. That I may take pleasure in dwelling with my people. C.S. Lewis says that if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go about making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, I do a lot of, I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time dreaming about things like, like a single family home. I spend a lot of time dreaming about vacations. I spend a lot of time dreaming about, you know, a more productive, busier, uh, fulfilling schedule. I spend a lot of time dreaming about all those things. What do you dream about? What have we dreamed about dwelling with God? What have we dreamed about his kingdom come and his will be done? What have we dreamed about a place of perfect shalom and peace and harmony? What have we dreamed about God being all in all? What if that's where our desires were aimed? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And they will, because it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And God, I pray that we would know the grace of dwelling with you. That we would know that that's what our hearts long for and that's what we're truly after. And so I pray that we would prioritize knowing you and loving you and seeing other people know and love you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things for Christ's sake, that he might be glorified, that we might be satisfied. Amen.